everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Techspansive. I'm Sean Dubervac with Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin with Radical Research. If you didn't catch our special episode from earlier this week, definitely tune in and check that out where we cover all of the news related to Apple's announcements this week, including Apple Card, their new credit card uh, introduction. We discuss Apple TV Plus and Apple News Plus and many of the things that Apple introduced over the last week, including a review of some of their hardware. So definitely check that out. This week, we're going to dive into some content news as it relates to some of the things that Apple's doing, some news around uh, Google and their goals with respect to YouTube and, and original content. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll also talk about some of the AR and VR announcements we've seen this week, including announcements related to Magic Leap and HTC Vive's Focus Plus standalone VR headset. So we'll talk about that. And then for our lightning round here at the close of the show, we'll discuss LG's ThinQ8, News Plus, and some news from McDonald's. So let's jump into some of the content news. We saw a slew of announcements from Apple as it relates to Apple TV Plus. We saw uh, a first look at some of the, the original content that they have planned. And then also this week, we saw Bloomberg reporting that Google is planning to get out of the uh, original content space. So that was later disputed by by Google. The, the news that Bloomberg reported was YouTube was canceling plans for high-end dramas and comedies and pulling back from its earlier plans for a paid service from Hollywood quality shows. Uh, but again, Google disputed that fact and that report later on. I, I think what it does is it sets up a really interesting dynamic where you have Google pursuing uh, original high-end content still within their traditional, at least right now, ad-supported environment, though they could move some original high-end content to towards a paid service. And YouTube has been increasingly pushing paid services. Uh, at the same time, you've got Apple set to launch a number of original content shows uh, and, and spending billion-plus dollars there. Ross, how do you see some of these frictions playing out in, in the months ahead? So I, I wanted to step back a, a little bit on this one and um, <clears throat> excuse me talk about some commercials I saw this week. Uh, one of the things I've talked about on the podcast in the past is uh, this idea of Apple taking its privacy rhetoric uh, directly to the consumer, and they finally did it. I finally saw a commercial uh, from, uh, uh, from Apple on opening day uh, about the iPhone, and rather it being about any iPhone video uh, candy or, or features or Siri, it was about privacy, and the whole commercial was basically just a, a bunch of different privacy scenarios, scenarios where you would want privacy, and then they just sort of throw iPhone at you at the end. And during the same broadcast, uh, I saw uh, a Google commercial, which was all about services, and it's to the tune of the Beatles' help, uh, and it's about maps and Google Assistant and uh, all of the different kinds of searches 
you can do on Google. And I thought it was fascinating to see these two companies play on different elements of the <laughs> free services uh, value proposition with Google, of course, focusing on the benefits, right? All of this stuff, all of this help they can offer you. Uh, something that helps endear them to people as opposed to Facebook, where people kind of question the value versus Apple, you know, which is saying, you know, not talking necessarily about the, the cost to support its ecosystem. And, and, you know, this will play into TV plus in a moment. Uh, I promise, <laughs> but, uh, but the privacy that they can afford to offer because their services are not ad supported. So uh, this sort of background debate about privacy that Apple has gradually been kicking up more and more rhetoric about, you know, speaking to government bodies. And we talked about, I think the banner that they had at CES, uh, what, what happens on the iPhone stays on the iPhone, you know, is a, a little uh, joke on the, the old uh, Las Vegas tourism slogan. So now they are taking that direct to consumer. And I think they did it in a pretty good way. They did it in a, a very non-technical way. Uh, but they're starting to get that message out there. And I, I think it's going to start resonating uh, quite a bit more. So, so let's move this to video. And I think the issue, you know, there's a lot of play here, obviously. But I think one of the issues is that YouTube is such a massive ad-supported uh, economy onto its own that to launch subscription services out of it, and Google has been trying for some time, both in terms of YouTube TV and YouTube Music uh, and YouTube Red, is uh, there's a lot of uphill there. You know, they're building off a massive installed base, but YouTube has been so associated with free and advertising that it remains to be seen what is the main differentiator there to in, in what is becoming an increasingly crowded field. And in a field where more and more uh, services are turning to the free ad supported model. Uh, Sony Crackle was a, a pioneer there. Now we're seeing, uh, I mean, Hulu has done it for some time. They, I think they moved that part to Yahoo Video. Uh, the, the free ad-supported tier. Uh, Voodoo is, is doing a lot with it. Um, they have a, a, a massive lineup of ad-supported movies and TV shows. And uh, there are others, um, uh, 2B, 2B TV, TUBI, uh, Pluto, I think, is, is another one. So, uh, you know, just off the top of my head, that's almost half a dozen free video services, and I'm, I'm sure I'm missing more. Uh, popcorn flicks. Uh, there's quite a long tail. So, so there is all all of this content. You know, a lot of second tier content out there. Uh, you kind of have to go for some level of, of premium programming, and that is set apart from what a Apple's messaging with TV Plus, which is highest quality, most creative storytellers on the planet. Let's bring out the star power. Uh, even though, and you know, Sean, we were talking a, a little bit about this before we started, the response, at least to the initial lineup, has been a, a bit underwhelming. Now, do, do you think, you know, for example, uh, Amazing Stories, which uh, 
Steven Spielberg is bringing to the service. He's tried that before. <laughs> you know, he he had that on NBC, and it, it's kind of unclear what the reboot is going to uh, to look like. So, uh, what what do you think is is going on with the TV Plus initial reaction? Do you think it's just sort of early days, or do you think that maybe Apple is trying to seek out new audiences that? Uh, you know, maybe makes a lot of the traditional installed base for these kinds of services a little less enthusiastic. I think one of the the things that that Apple really uh, got dinged on this week was the way they presented the content to the marketplace. Mm. And we talked a little bit about this. Right. When no Apple trailers. Does, yeah. When Apple does a hardware launch, they go into excruciating detail about the hardware category, uh, about all of the features and attributes of it. And if they didn't, uh, then the tech press would would ding them. Right. And yet they didn't do the same thing when it came to content. The the content uh, press that that cover original content want to see some of that content. They don't want just a a flashy commercial that highlights the content. They don't want to hear just from the the stars that are bringing that content to market, but they want to actually see some of some of it. And, and as we noted, some of this content has been in the works since last fall. So they should have been able to show several minutes of clips to, to the audience. And so I think in some ways they just misunderstood how that market is, is operated and how content is brought to market in that space. They showed a montage at least at, at some point of clips. Right. But, right. but I agree just, with you. It's not enough. For sure. No. And that's the classic Apple approach though, is, you know, you, you have some very well, design very fluid video that's you know that's popping I mean, going back to the, the original iphone commercials that's what they loved to do and and so uh, they do that very well and it's great at at commercializing the product and socializing the product but not necessarily great when you have a, a an audience and, and again this is essentially a press event or should have been a press event well it's, uh, it's a media event but it's not it's not a traditional upfront like like a, a network would have or Netflix right. would have to showcase its its new shows. And, you know, I would say that once Apple gets rolling with this thing, they will do that. And and I'll also say a little bit in their defense that it was clear from, for example, the Oprah uh, presentation that some of this stuff is still baking. But yes. but yes, uh, certainly some of it is in the can. Uh, and I think they would have benefited from a trailer or two, some some sample reel or you know a sample reel or two. Yeah, well, and as we talked about on uh, in the last episode, um, it's clear that they're still putting together the details on some of this in the in that they didn't announce any any pricing. And you noted that they probably didn't announce pricing because they have at least it looks to be a plan to launch globally, to launch in a hundred countries all at once. And if you're going to do that, then you'll have differentiated pricing, arguably, across those different countries. And so you don't want to announce a, a North American price or or a given price if you're not going to hold that price in, in all markets. So, sure. But it's clear that they're still putting together some of those, arguably, some of those details. And that after the fact, we didn't see pricing for at least some of the, the biggest markets. You know, we talk so much about YouTube being a platform for user-generated content, and, and that's where the value is. I'm not convinced, though, that it's the user-generated content uh, today that, that it once was. And if you mm -hmm. look at 
what kids are watching on YouTube and they view YouTube as, you know, looks a lot like a, a cable uh, operation to them, or it looks a lot like, um, you know, a, a Netflix or an Amazon Prime where they've got a variety of different shows that they go to. And these shows are together by, you know, YouTube stars. Right. Now, they might have started as pure user-generated content, but as they built very large followings, then they built teams out, they've monetized it in different ways. And so you have a, a very well um, choreographed show. And that, and that is choreographed in different ways, depending upon what that artist is is trying to accomplish. And so I'm not convinced that it's, uh, you know, the user-generated content that it once was, where it's anybody recording whatever they want and uploading. Still, a tremendous amount of that exists, but there are sure. a lot of shows, especially shows focused on kids. So, for example, I think some of the um, announcements we saw coming out of their gaming platform, where you'll be able to record and stream to YouTube directly from the remote, one button, push, and push your your stream straight to YouTube live, I think is extremely compelling for that, for that audience, for that kid audience um, that, that is today watching people game on both YouTube and Twitch. This becomes a, an interesting move for them. The, uh, I, I was curious if you would be able to, you know, to your point about a lot of the shows, I, I feel compelled to put that in quotes, but you know, uh, that, that you've seen, certainly a lot of them are personality dominated, but how many of them, or have, have you seen a significant number or do any stand out uh, for you where it's been more than just kind of like person in front of a camera, or maybe they have like a two camera setup uh, where they actually, you know, where something, actually happens or, or they get out in, into the studio instead of it just being either a talking head or alternating between the person addressing the audience and maybe watching them play a game or cook something or, or do something like that. I mean, just because it just seems like, yes, there are the celebrities who have amassed audiences of millions, uh, but it, it just seems to me to be so personality driven and so different from the kind of not not just scripted shows, but even even some of the unscripted kind of stuff that that we see on television uh, that just seems far more dynamic. I you know I mean a lot of that is just production costs. So even think about a sh you know a show like The Kardashians. Uh, yes, the editing is a huge part of it, but but you know they also have live you know, camera crews that are following these people as they go into different, uh, you know, different places and, and travel with them and, you know, wiring up the car and, you know, all this stuff. So the the one that comes to mind uh, is Dude Perfect, if you think of them. So that's a, a group of guys that started as a group of friends um, and they did trick shots and those trick shots became ever popular. And so now they have a, a show that, that, that's still their core, I would say, is is doing trick shots, but they do a lot of other things. They'll have little comedy, you know, what is essentially comedy skits uh -huh. involved, and they'll do um, competitions. And, and they clearly have, you know, it's not necessarily choreographed, but it is definitely very well edited. They have a crew that's 
that's recording them. They've clearly scripted out what the show will look like. Mm. And they're, you know, it's very appealing to that, that audience call it K through, through 12, probably K through six uh, that that's tuning in to, you know, catch the, the latest episode or watch some episode that they've already watched over and over and over again. Wow, that's sure. also something that you see a lot more of, I think in a YouTube environment where they're so comfortable like, watching the same show. Kind of a wiggles, a wiggles demographic maybe. Uh, yeah. Probably a little older than, than a wiggles demographic. Cause they're, you know, they're doing trick basketball shots. Or oh, trick, cool. I mean, they, they'll do trick shots with pretty much everything. <laughs> and, um, I, you know, frisbees or golf, golf balls or any, I you see. know, anything, but, um, but it's definitely not just, or at least it no longer is one-offs like the one-off trick shots, but they'll, you know, they'll do shows, uh, where they, they clearly have, have something planned for that show right. and they've gone in and they've built whatever gear they needed or whatever else they needed to, to perform the show. And they'll do that. So that's just one example. I mean, to your point, I guess there aren't a lot of shows that I think of in that, you know, in that drama, high-end drama space that exists on YouTube. There might be. I just don't. I don't watch them. I mean, it's not necessarily my demographics, but I know my kids are are heavy consumers of the Dude Perfect type shows. And this right. is the type of show that, you know, you and I might have watched as an after-school type show on a traditional over-the-air station. Right. And and now it's showing up on, you know, on YouTube. So the the audience is definitely there. Uh, and I'm not convinced that that audience needs high end dramas. I, I do think comedies probably are very well positioned for that audience. And again, mm -hmm. thinking of it like a after school type channel. I, I wonder, you know, how much of it is just, hey, first gen stuff. We're still learning. We, we've lined up some great partners. But sometimes it takes a little while, you know, just, just to get the momentum going. Um, you know, I, I think about uh, some of the early stuff on Hulu, uh, some of their original stuff, uh, Difficult People, which I think was sort of a eh, moderate hit, you know. Uh, they didn't really, but, you know, they, they it certainly did not get the kind of critical acclaim that, uh, you know, that they got with Handmaid's Tale, right? And um, uh even hbo uh in in the very early days they had a fair amount of original programming be before the sopranos uh right. but that was of course their big breakout hit uh and uh you know really set the stage for so much stuff to to come uh in in the future so uh netflix also you know uh prior to you know, some of their early stuff, it certainly has its fans, like, you know, Bojack Horseman, one of their early animated shows, for example. Uh, you know, critically, I, I would say very strong, but, but you know, nothing, you know, doesn't receive, didn't receive nearly the amount of attention of, uh, you know, House of Cards, uh, which, which was probably their big, you know, their, their, their highest profile move. And, you know, may, maybe that's the thing, Sean, is that, Yes, they had the talent uh, at, at, at this introduction, but it wasn't as if they had acquired rights to something that, <clears throat> excuse me, a franchise that people were, were super excited about. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that helped for 
for Hulu. It, it helped for Netflix. Uh, you know, certainly nowadays with, with Game of Thrones, you know, it was, it was huge for, for HBO. Uh, so, you know, maybe, maybe they would prefer, maybe, maybe that's in line with their, their, uh, their positioning as, as a place to tell stories. Maybe that implies new stories, creative stories that have not been, you know, that, that don't necessarily come from books or, or other media, but I got to think, you know, at, at some point they will uh, acquire the rights to some franchise. Uh, and, uh, you know, may, maybe that's what drives a lot more uh, attention to to the service because yeah talent is important no question but playing off that that existing fan base is also important something like 15 billion dollars this year just on their own content so the question <clears throat> is does it, does youtube have are they willing to commit those type of funds? And and ultimately, is Apple willing to commit those type of funds? And do they need to commit that amount of money to be a viable competitor in this space and to attract the attention? I mean, that's arguably where if if Google keeps this as an ad supported approach, where Google could drive revenue by the popularity. So you don't have to create about monetizing it perhaps in, in the same way that Netflix and, and Apple will have to continue to invest in original content to continue to, to drive uh, subscriptions and to maintain subscriptions. So well, I, I think there's big open questions of how much you have to invest if you have to make those investments at all and, and how you drive attention to your to your platforms. Well, we're, we're definitely going to be seeing uh, a lot of the landscape shift in, in the next few years. A lot of new players coming in. Uh, there's an interesting article we were talking about earlier uh, on uh, Vanity Fair, an interview with the new head of Warner Media, uh, Bob Greenblatt, and what he is doing uh, in terms of bringing together uh, HBO and um, uh, the, some of the Turner broadcasting properties, uh, TBS, TNT, True TV, and what that looks like and how you preserve HBO as this premium crown jewel brand while bringing in some of this other content that's traditionally been uh, ad supported. Uh, what's going to happen with Hulu, uh, which has historically been marketed on the breadth of its content portfolio? How sustainable is that when all of the content owners are breaking off and starting their own services. Um, you know, it certainly does not have the kind of budget or original programming to be sustained on that. And you know, there's been some discussion about how Disney's new service, Disney Plus, will cater more toward uh, kids, you know, uh, huge franchise for them, of course, whereas Hulu will be more of their adult programming. But for example, uh, Marvel, right, uh, certainly crosses that, that gap. And there have been a few Marvel movies that are definitely not kids' movies, like, like the Deadpool movies, right? Uh, which is fine. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're super fun movies, but they're not kids' movies. So, you know, they're, they're pulling the rights for these things from Netflix. Where, where do they wind up? Uh, it will uh, 
it will definitely be interesting to see. Yeah, and it, I think it shows it's hard. It will be hard for you ultimately to move away from that ad-supported environment. I think that's one of the, the chances for YouTube is because to the point you made at the very beginning, it's so, uh, it's so ingrained in that ad-supported environment. Um, but there and, will be... Uh, uh, go ahead. I, I was going to say, and yet, you know, it seems like the version of Hulu that they're going to have on, um, on the Apple TV app is going to be the, the ad-free version. So, so, you know, maybe yeah. that's one way that they segment. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how, you know, what this market starts to look like as they, as each of these platforms tries to figure out how to differentiate themselves in what is, as you noted, an increasingly competitive environment and, and how they attract a significant enough viewership in order to justify the the investment and that's you know that's what you see and that was the beauty of the youtube model early on was that users were generating the content mm-hmm. for them and so they didn't have to worry about uh spending on original content and and they make about 15 dollars and an ad 15 billion dollars a year in advertising revenue um, much of it on the back of of uh you know individual users or users who have over time built a, a platform as you noted apple is taking a very different approach and and definitely going more down the, the netflix route uh but you know i think the question is how how many individuals are out there what's that the addressable market for people who are willing to spend on diverse subscription services well and, and, and there's another angle to that subscription service uh you know what's the tolerance because apple you know, my my thought is that Apple, for the foreseeable future, is not going to have as many premium TV subscribers as Netflix. And they've been at Apple Music for a little while, and they've made some good progress. Uh, but you know, they're still still haven't caught up with Spotify. And now they've got all these other services, so they really have a unique opportunity to cross sell. I think perhaps more than any other uh, company out there, arguably. And so it'll be interesting to see, you know, even if they don't offer um, a a lot of uh, viewership data back to the content creators, how effectively they can do things like, oh, you liked uh, A Star is Born with Lady Gaga, you know, here are some of her tracks on on Apple Music that, that you might be interested in. And here are some articles on Apple News Plus that talk about what she's been doing since the movie, you know, our coverage of the movie. So, so I think that could be a tremendous opportunity for them um, to, to leverage the media consumption habits of their users, but keep it in-house, you know, uh, and, and just use it to cross-sell uh, if, if you're all in on, on the Apple services. Well, and it'll be interesting to see how far Apple can go down that road, given their their strong stance on privacy, before consumers start to feel like they've violated that commitment, even if they're right. keeping it. I mean, because if you look at the way they're approaching privacy in, in other places, especially <coughs> with Apple Card, they're not pulling that information off of the device, off of the phone. They're keeping it stored locally, so it's not even brought brought to the cloud. So they're thinking about privacy at a, at a very localized level. 
if they start to suggest a, a bunch of things that may start to feel like you're getting AI. And, yeah. AI yeah. induced recommendations and AI is powered by data. You need lots of data to power. Sure. I do completely agree that their ability to cross subsidize is very strong. And that's one of the things that, that benefits someone like Amazon and Amazon prime is they can cross subsidize across a variety of different uh, services. You, right. You subscribe to Prime and you get all of these other things as part of it. So whereas I might not subscribe to Prime just for the content, I'm happy to do it because I get content, I get some shipping options, I get some of these other things. Right. And and so you're able to grow your your uh, viewership there and grow your, your subscriber base there. Apple could do the same thing, arguably. We presume they'll probably have a bundle offering where you get TV Plus, News Plus, uh, uh, Apple Arcade, you know, music. So you're going to be able to have some subscription service that covers all of their offerings. And by the way, you can pay for it with your Apple card. And so, you know, that they'll benefit there holistically. And there will be some people who probably take advantage of that. So it'll, it'll be interesting. Uh, whereas YouTube is content focused. They don't at least yet have a lot of other things to include as part of that bundle. Now that could change. And you alluded to their they're commercial about all the services they offer. Maybe in the future, a YouTube subscription, if that's the direction they go, includes a variety of other services that they could uh, that they could offer. Um, though I would say that the popularity of that over the last year has dwindled because of the, the scrutiny that Facebook has gotten mm-hmm. as they've started to combine information across the different platforms and and the calls today to break up their uh, their platforms into separate companies instagram facebook separating them uh so i think tech companies are probably a bit hesitant to start to combine all of these different platforms uh for you know given given that current climate and given that current risk and and you've seen Mm. youtube back away from some of the some of the you know the, the content that they've been putting on the behind the paywall moving that out from the paywall uh, so so it'll be interesting and there's a lot of dynamics at at play there um whether a la carte is the way to go whether bundled makes sense whether premium makes sense or or ad supported makes sense and and can these all coexist and is there enough content producers out there you know if you if you start to spend if Netflix is spending $15 billion a year and Apple spends $15 billion a year, Google starts to spend $15 billion a year on content. Can the Steven Spielbergs of the world produce that much content? Are there enough Steven Spielbergs in the world? Are there enough Oprah Winfrey's in the world to produce that um, amount of content? So hmm. that becomes a, a question as well. Yeah, that one I'm less concerned about. <laughs> plenty, plenty of people always looking for work, I think. and. <laughs> there are, but there is a high return to the premium. And there's, you know, sure. again, that's kind of the long tail. So if you're thinking about really scripted shows, premium content, you know, what, what does that look like? Now, you could argue that 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 digital has changed that significantly. And, and you referenced how XM, as they've moved online, has 
exploded the number of different types of, of channels. So they're aggregating that in lots of different ways now. Um, so that, you know, and, and YouTube has shown that the amount you have to invest in a show to have a very successful show has, has changed as well. Uh, but there's still a, a premium on those premium providers. And, so, and there's only a, a number of those. And, and, and it's uh, actually, you raised a good point uh, earlier. I think both of these conversations were before the show. So don't worry, guys, you, you didn't miss anything. Uh, the, uh, you, you were talking about Spotify, uh, which just acquired another um, uh, podcasting yeah. studio. This one focused on mystery kinds of stories i think or crime yeah, dramas Par, uh, parcast is Parcast. a podcast studio focused on true crime cults unsolved mysteries fun and so they continue i think there was an announcement last week about another studio that they acquired so they continue to acquire studios at a at a fast clip and and so podcasts are you know um getting pretty meta here but uh it's they're they're a great example of something that uh are side projects. Um, some of them have gotten quite big, or you know, some of them are uh, the efforts of people who, you know, whose uh, may may not have been as active uh, in in other media for some time, um, but they enjoy this medium and they built a following around this medium, uh, and uh, and you know, some of the Gimlet, which. Uh, Spotify uh, also uh, acquired has uh, produced some of these things. We talked about another studio that's that's trying the the one that acquired um, Trevor Noah's podcast. So mm -hmm. so it, it shows that even with people who are engaged, I mean, podcasts may be an interesting exception because you know they certainly don't require the kind of work that uh, a feature film does, but. Uh, uh, you know, there, there are opportunities. It's it's not necessarily for the talent uh, always about um, the financial, necessarily always the financial return. It could be about a cause that they're passionate about. Uh, it could be about, uh, you know, reaching a new audience, right? It could be about uh, communicating with their audience on a different level. So, uh, yeah, uh, much... Uh, much much more to come and and speaking of new media uh i wanted to talk a little bit about ar and vr uh so um sean you mentioned at the beginning of the show a couple of announcements that we're seeing with um uh the new uh, htc vive uh headset and uh at&t is going to be uh, showing off the new magic leap one headset at some of their, their stores in April, uh, available for purchase for the first time at um, a, a bit over $2,000. So definitely not a mainstream consumer product uh, at, at this point. And a couple of weeks ago, you know, I mentioned uh, the Vario headset on the podcast some time ago, certainly a uh, professional level tool, but I also recently got to try the HP Reverb headset uh, which is not quite as high-end a product, probably more in the range of that HTC uh, product. And essentially, it seems to me that it's, the VR market is, has, has become this kind of, oh, you know, one other thing, uh, 
Sony announced recently that it had sold, uh, I think it was 4 million PlayStation VR headsets, and they're often acknowledged to be the volume leader. So uh, so we, we've seen this interesting stratification where you've got games, right? That's a market. Uh, and then you've got this enterprise design stuff, uh, which really demands higher end equipment. Um, and so a lot of the focus on these new headsets have been around increased resolution, which games, of course, can also benefit from. And HP is going to do a consumer version of that headset. But, but I have been interested in this idea of what kind of tasks are best in the enterprise for VR versus which ones are best focused for uh, augmented reality. And I, I wrote a column about this uh, for, for ZDNet. Uh, but there is a lot of overlap. You know, there's a lot of overlap in training. There's a lot of overlap in design. The thing, I think one of the things in VR's favor right now is that there is this good selection of moderately priced hardware. Uh, I think the um, the HP headset is about 600 bucks, you know, so consider that maybe the price of a, of a nice high-end monitor, uh, you know, for, for design. And, uh, and so, and, you know, there's good support for it in Windows at, at this point. Uh, so, um, and so I, I think that's part of what continues to, to drive that market. Uh, even though, for example, the Reverb is a mixed, Windows Mixed Reality headset. Uh, and in general, the first generation of those did not seem to be received very warmly in the market. Yeah, and I, you know, I think the question is like, does this take off? When and if so, when does it take off? I mean, you're, take off you're as a consumer phenomenon. Or? Well, both. I mean, I think both. Both clearly, Magic Leap and and HTC's Vibe Focus Plus are focused more on the enterprise. HTC's priced around eight hundred dollars and will be available in in twenty five markets, supporting almost twenty languages. Uh, as you noted, Magic Leap will will be available for over two thousand dollars it it seems like there there's pretty good immersive content like the ability to deliver an immersive experiences there uh with respect to the v r side uh of it um you're starting to see a lot of applications where they're using it uh on especially on the enterprise side for training for you know for simulations for other things. Um, and, and yet it still remains a pretty niche marketplace. Mm -hmm. Some of that, I, I think, is just that we're still pretty early in the cycle. But do we see that start to, to pick up or does this stay a, a, a very niche market? Well, one of, one of the things I spoke to uh, HP about, uh, and I, I think it's, it's an issue for on the AR side as well, is that, yes, uh, I agree. There is some pretty cool content being generated. There are some very interesting applications in terms of different kinds of speaking and translation and immersion and you know helping people overcome different kinds of anxieties. Uh, at, at show, I think at a, sh a trade show last year, I saw some kind of like courtroom training for attorneys, uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff. Uh, so yes, yeah, so there are there, 
the, the cost of this has come down enough where it's feasible for, for a lot of corporate applications. However, that doesn't mean that the things are trivial to create. And, and so a lot of the hardware vendors are now uh, directing customers to the studios that can create these kinds of experiences. Uh, because yes, there's some interesting off the shelf stuff, but a, a lot of the enterprise clients are also interested in custom applications for their own systems. Uh, and they likely do not have those resources in-house. So, so I think that is also something holding it back as opposed to just whipping up a, a web application or a Windows application where, where they either have in-house developers or they've been working with uh, developer groups, agencies uh, to produce these kinds of things. There's a lot more to be done to make creating the experience more accessible, and you know it's a chicken and egg uh, scenario. I think as as adoption picks up, we'll see more skilled developers, uh, more agencies, and they'll be able to produce these things more more affordably. What do you think it will take to jump from the enterprise to the consumer front? To me, the enterprise use case scenarios are are pretty well uh defined and when you think about where would i want to use this in an enterprise environment you can you can think of a scenario that makes sense and you can then build out content that helps with that and examples where retailers are using vr to help new sales associates prepare for right. big events like black friday I, I think that's a great use case scenario very well defined um arguably you've got you know you can build out content for that um and you can you can do that. So that makes sense. On the consumer front, it's it's a, a little bit more complicated. There are, game, there are games enthusiasts, for sure. Right. right. Yeah, ga gaming I, makes a lot of sense. I'll, I'll tell you something that I think uh, kind of bodes well for VR, even though I think it's counterintuitive <laughs> to say that it does. Um, so a lot of these sort of arcade uh, kinds of setups where you would go and they would have these high-end VR headsets and you would go experience these things. Uh, that has been kind of a tough, that's been a tough model to crack. Mm -hmm. I, I think there are, uh, you know, still some independent groups doing it. I know there's um, one here on, I think, uh, 42nd Street um, in, uh, in New York called uh, VR World or something like that. But but it, it, you know, I think IMAX tried something that that didn't really pan out. Uh, so I, I think, but but so why am I? Why do I think that's kind of a good sign? Because because I think it's it's a personal experience, you know, and I think that uh, there are potential applications like chatting applications, uh, video, you know, conferencing applications. Uh, uh, you know, going into a car showroom and, and seeing different types of vehicles you might be interested in. Uh, I think that that's far more powerful than seeing a, a photo, even a 360, you know, rotatable photo on the web. So, so for me, I, I think part of it is finding the sweet spot of, uh, of, of power and convenience and, and price, right? So, so today we've got something like the Oculus Go, uh, which I think is a great product uh, 
competitively. You know, it's two hundred dollars. It offers mm -hmm. pretty good resolution. Uh, setup is pretty good. Uh, so so there's that. And and you know, but but even that has not really been a breakthrough kind of product. And you know, we're seeing Oculus go higher end, uh, go go back higher end now. Um, I think that it, you know, it's got to be something more like glasses. It, it has to be something that's not as obtrusive on the face, you know, but yet offers full full immersion. I mean, may, maybe just the nature of VR is such that you you just can't really do it uh, un, unless you have you know some pretty significant headwear on. So so maybe that's why uh, so many people say that AR is really the future. Not just because it allows you to stay uh, grounded in the real world and and show how things interact in the real world and provide a sense of scale and other things, but simply because it's just far more practical to build a headset that uh, is is lighter uh, and and you know do, doesn't uh, but is lighter and yet allows you to to easily communicate with those around you and, and go outside. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, by definition, you're not trying to block out the outside world like you right. are in a in a virtual environment. Though, as I look at my kids, they would absolutely love to be <laughs> able to close out the outside world. The last thing they want to do is communicate with uh, <laughs> anyone in real time or in real life. They'll right. they'll communicate to the person next to them if if they're both in the virtual world. But um, so it it will be interesting. I, I mean, I do think that there's extremely strong demand or or expectations among that younger cohort that gen z especially the younger portion of the gen z that right. they will do more in a, in an immersive environment uh, and you know maybe as they mature into other fields that immersive environment is only partially immersive and it's mostly you know an ar world um so so we'll see i think there's a lot more to come it's good that we're seeing some of these highly touted high-end ar you know vr experiences come to market now and it'll be interesting to see uh how they do well magic leap is, is definitely an interesting case study because despite the price point they are definitely a consumer play uh long long term you mm -hmm. know it's none of this microsoft oh you know we're we're really here for the azure <laughs> you know, for the Azure sales, right? Uh, yeah, this is neat stuff, but you know what? What we're really talking about is the software and services element to it, because that's the only way that Satya allows us to continue to pursue this. <laughs> uh, the uh, Magic Leap. I mean, you know, look who they're partnering with. You know, they're trying to partner with content companies. They're trying to, you know, they're huge investment from AT and T, huge investment from Google. So uh, the price point is definitely not there yet. Uh, and they've got a massive developer chicken and egg problem, but um, it'll be fascinating to see how how content rolls out for that and and how compelling it becomes. Well, when you think about standalone VR or or AR platforms, a big piece of it is the connectivity. Most would argue that mm -hmm. you need five G environment, and so now right. that we're starting to see five G environments, yep. maybe that will start to drive it. Because I I do think that you know increasingly the rich content is is showing up enough that you're that you would be willing to get a headset you know again you're not maybe using it all of the time 
where you're not using as much as you are other screens uh, that are competing for your attention. But, you know, it, it, it is there. So it'll be interesting to see um, how if 5G can really usher in that the next era of entertainment from a consumer perspective. Yeah, great point on 5G. So let's jump now to the lightning round where we've got a couple of things to discuss. First is LG ThinQs 8, which uh, we got announced about a month ago. We got announcements of that about a month ago from LG, but it didn't come with pricing or, or other launch information. We got that this week that it'll start to show up uh, in about two weeks. T-Mobile will have it and some others will have it. Uh, your your thoughts on the LG ThinQ 8 launch? So LG, I think, is in a very interesting position uh, among handset vendors. They're, they're certainly not one of the two big guys, and they're not one of these Chinese, uh, you know, insurgents uh, coming in with really lowball uh, pricing in the mid-tier. Uh, they're also not uh, HTC, you know, which has really been... Uh, hurting very much. So the, the business certainly hasn't been robust enough where they haven't uh, looked at it critically. You know, they have been looking at it critically. And so I think it was kind of good to see them introduce both this and the V50 uh, at, the, uh, at, at the same event, Mobile uh, MWC Barcelona. Uh, and so the signature feature of, of this one are all these like um, hand gestures, this ability, these touch-free gestures, the ability to, for example, wave your hand on top of the phone and, and do different things. And I, we've seen some flavor of this on Samsung phones in the past, but they, they really seem to have um, uh, implemented it a lot better. So uh, is it enough to move the needle for them? Probably not, but it's a, it's a good idea. <laughs> Uh, and I like how they are tapping into this idea of more presence around the home, more presence when you're not actually holding the phone, but doing it in a way that doesn't rely on speech. So I, I do think there's some some value there. Ross, as, as you mentioned, I completely agree that some of the touchless gesture, the really interesting approaches to the phone, uh, and also to, to your point, do they have enough of the market? I don't know. It, you know, if these features catch on, inevitably we will see them quickly pulled into other devices, which is, has been the case. And because phones have such short design cycles, it's very easy to, to grab the killer features and move them into the newest phone. So if it if it catches on, we'll see Apple, we'll see Google, we'll see others using those. And, you know, to, to your point, um, you see these Chinese vendors having really good success in this marketplace as well. I saw that Xiaomi reported earnings, Q4 earnings of 6.6 .6 billion, up 26% year over year. Sales outside of China grew to 40% of its total revenue and are, are, uh, were 28% were last year. So you're seeing that carrier grow as well. Huawei uh, also released its annual report um, showing showing strong growth and also recently announced uh, their P30 phone, which I think can do like 10x optical zoom. Um, and it's kind of funny, uh, it relates back because <clears throat> with the G7, I'm sorry, the, the V40, uh, LG was all about five cameras. 
So now it's less, you know, they've moved off the cameras uh, and someone else is picking up that mantle and now they're they're trying to move on to the other thing. You know, I, I think that's just been kind of a challenge for them that they keep uh, jumping from one thing to another in terms of what to focus on. So sometimes they, they try to stick to the things that are really driving the market. Other times they try to create a new focus in the market. So, you know, it's uh, it's been tough. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what you try to do when you're not the number one carrier, right? right? The number one handset yeah. is you try to figure out how do we differentiate ourselves to create a viable enough market to, to keep us in this, uh, in this space, at, at least within the U.S. Right. Uh, lightning round number two, we're going to talk about one of the big questions coming out of Apple's announcement around News Plus was how much access will subscribers get to the Wall Street Journal? And it looks like we've got uh, some additional news on that. And that that was a big question because uh, News Plus pricing was announced at $9.99 a month, so $10, $10 a month, whereas the Wall Street Journal subscribers are paying closer to $20 a month, so $15 to $20 a month. So arguably, if you had full access to the Wall Street Journal, why not give up that subscription and move to uh, News Plus and then get the Wall Street Journal plus a, a variety of other publications. Obviously, that wouldn't work well for Wall Street Journal and that, that wouldn't be great economics for them. So there were some questions around how much how much Wall Street Journal content would be available in News Plus. And it looks like some general pr purpose studies or, or news articles will uh, be available to them, uh, to subscribers of News Plus. It looks like they will also be able to see some of the archives, up to three days of the archives. They'll have some financial news available to them. But if you want full access to the archives, you'll have to then subscribe to the, to the Wall Street Journal. My take on this is that it really shows how valuable those archives might be. And perhaps Wall Street Journal did an analysis before they went down this road to see that people are often subscribing when they want access to, to older articles. So maybe the, the real value of content platforms is not what they're currently putting out, but all of the content that they've put out. And certainly we've mm -hmm. seen that true with studios and Disney being the, one of the best examples that the value of their vault uh, is mm -hmm. tremendous. And the value of, of those archives is tremendous. Maybe the same is true with news in a digital environment, which be which would be very different than what we might presuppose. I, I think they have to look at it as a user acquisition play. And unfortunately for them, when people sign up through Apple News, they News Plus, they don't really get a lot of information about the subscriber. Uh, I, I've seen some really interesting discussion about how sharing of articles is going to work between all these all, all these configurations of, of a walled garden, you know, what happens if you share a journal article with someone who is a digital Wall Street Journal subscriber, but is not a News Plus subscriber, you know, how will Apple know that? Will the journal know that? You know, will Dow Jones know that? Uh, so I, I, I think a few things to be to be worked out there. Uh, the terms of, of the sharing might just be, I don't know, easier if you're a, a journal subscriber outside. but but I think the journal is kind of a unique publication, uh, a little bit like uh, Financial Times uh, in, in 
Europe, uh, where, you know, if you're a professional, it's, it's kind of a given, you know, you, you need to have access to this thing. It's, it's a trivial expense in the scheme of things. Um, but, but Apple News Plus, you know, it's going to be reaching for a broader audience. So, so all things told, it's probably not a bad compromise. At least they are finding some way to monetize off the content, um, which at the end of the day is probably preferable uh, to them to say what the Times does with these, you know, five free articles a month. Uh, and then, you know, it becomes a silly game of, well, now I'm going to, you know, open another browser and right. more, you know, so, uh, so sure, not, not ideal, but, but hopefully, you know, the journal is, is justifying it as a kind of a brand audience expansion play. So the third news that we thought we'd cover in our lightning round is McDonald's acquisition of dynamic yield, which uses machine learning to personalize online shopping and make product recommendations sources put the deal at close to 300 million this is mcdonald's biggest acquisition in 20 years and uh the the plan is at least for now that the company will operate independently under the mcdonald's brand obviously it will uh, benefit mcdonald's itself but it will continue to to operate independently and be able to take on other clients though arguably probably won't be able to take on clients like uh, burger king or wendy's would be my guess um guess. Uh, or you know five guys some of these others will probably be excluded um i i think it's really interesting to see how the lines are blurring between what's happening in a digital environment and then what's happening in a physical environment and bringing the best attributes of a digital environment into that physical space and you you see it here with this acquisition where it will really drive customization and pull in other information so maybe it's past purchase behavior maybe it's time of day maybe it's weather maybe it's how long the queue is maybe it's whether it's you know location is this your regular mcdonald's or is this one that you're hitting on as part of a road trip so all all of these dynamics all of this information then can drive the type of recommendations that that you will see inside of the app and perhaps even in the store over time the drive-through window could could arguably be customized based upon who's showing up and um, we really start to move into a minority report type environment (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, clearly we're, uh, we're ways from that. Uh, you know, they would, they would need some decent biometric, uh, technology, particularly for, uh, some of the in-store applications where you're not logging in. Um, you know, a, a lot of these, uh, fast food and fast casual, uh, restaurants are pushing a couple of things really hard. Definitely the app, um, offering coupons and touting the benefits of uh advance ordering you know when i when i go to starbucks sometimes i'm sitting there and the line is so long that i just use the mobile quote mobile order option uh in on my phone so that i can pick up my my coffee or eggs or whatever uh without having to wait online you know and just go grab it it's like the old drive-through 
strategy uh, when uh, when you don't have a car. Um, so a, a lot of interesting things happening in the app and also these in-store ordering kiosks where uh, clearly the benefit for the restaurant is cutting down on cashiers and yet uh these you know stepping through these things is can can be quite awkward and you have to figure out some way to log in if you, if you want to retain your order history so uh you know Sean you uh, before we were talking about comparing it to sort of interactive voice response menus you know uh voice voicemail jail menus um in, in the voice world as opposed to dealing with an intelligent agent um and i i think that's kind of the the dream of this to, yes, I, I think there's upside in the app, but I think the bigger win is um, making things like drive-through menus and in-store kiosks uh, a lot, uh, you know, making that operation a lot smoother for- Yeah, and um, if, you look at, if you look at those online, or those, uh, those uh, you know, call prompts, or even the, the kiosk menus really use basic, decision trees yeah and that's your basic ai um, and that's what a lot of ai uses is decision trees and so you know you work your way through the menu through a bunch of binary prompts in many cases of do you want this or do you want this and then it ultimately nets you out where you slide your credit card or, or pay in some way um, and then to get to a much more robust way i mean dynamic yield obviously get to a more dynamic environment where it's it's customized in a way that doesn't require um so solely relying on decision trees and and binary prompts it's funny because i you know a lot of this should be possible today or there should be a way to more easily interface between the phone and and the kiosk, you know, to have something stored in the app and, you know, just be able to tap it with NFC and, you know, uh, be offered a, a, a bigger screen experience or something, you know, uh, I guess part of it is because Apple was late to support NFC, you know, now that that stuff is rolling out, maybe we'll see more of that. But but I, I think there are other interesting applications like to see how uh, test market items are doing uh, and and, you know, maybe identifying different types of users in other cities uh, where, where you might want to offer that, or even uh, items that may be popular in different countries. Um, you know, maybe there's some potential to bring those uh, in, into the U.S. Uh, or from the U.S. into other countries. So, so uh, yeah, I, th I think a lot of, I agree with you that the big win, uh, certainly short term, is uh, personalization and customer experience but over the long term could could have even more strategic value. I completely agree. So we'll see how McDonald's starts to to leverage this and ultimately where it uh, where else it goes. Uh, so with that that's a wrap for this week's episode of Tech Expansive. McDonald's doesn't offer wraps. <laughs> uh. <laughs> but maybe they will with dynamic yield. Uh, yeah, maybe they will. Yeah. Maybe the whole menu will start to change. Maybe they will, yeah. Uh, again, I'm Sean Dubervac with Avrio Institute. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubervac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Don't forget to rate the podcast, share it with friends. Subscribe. And 
subscribe and tune in next week for our next episode of Tech Expansive.